Welcome to the National CMV Foundation podcast. I'm Kristen Spitek, President and Chair of the National CMV Foundation. Congenital cytomegalovirus, or CMV infection, is arguably the most common preventable cause of neonatal disability in the United States, affecting more than 30,000 children per year. The National CMV Foundation is dedicated to educating women of childbearing age about congenital CMV. And our podcast series highlights advocacy, education, industry, and scientific advances in the space, bringing congenital cytomegalovirus to the forefront of the conversation. For this episode, National CMV had the privilege of sponsoring a parent panel with five global experts during CMV 2019 in Birmingham, where each discussed their roles, the current state of screening, and their experiences with caring for children with congenital CMV. Hi, I'm Karen Fowler. You've seen me so many times with housekeeping so far. I work here at UAB. I'm an epidemiologist by training. I happen to be, though, a professor in pediatrics, um, so do a lot of research, probably 25-plus years now. Um, and so I'm up on the literature and aware, but I've got these expert clinicians over here who are going to tell us what it's really like. And so that's just a little bit about me. So I'm going to start, I think I'll start with Eva, and just ask, so can you provide us a brief background about your current position and your professional experience with congenital CV? Hello, so, uh, my name is Eva Kotor, and I'm an ENT surgeon, and very few ENT surgeons work with CMB, but I happened to meet four deaf kids in a short while, shorter than a week, and I realized that this can't be genetic, it has to be something else, so that, that's how my CMB interest started, 1996, so it's a while ago. Marissa? Hello. Uh, it's a pleasure being here. My name is Marisa Mussipi-Hatta. I'm from Brazil, University of Sao Paulo. I'm a pediatrician. I work with neonatology and infectious disease. Uh, since uh, around 2000, we have a group working uh, as a reference center. We uh, work in a public hospital. In Brazil, we have uh, at least 70% of the population is assisted by the public health system, which is free of charge for everybody. But 30% of the, the persons choose to have private insurance. They, they can have private insurance. And this is not uh, my experience. I work with the public health system. So we've been assisting uh, population, uh, the low-income population, and working with uh, research, uh, things with CMV research there. And because we have started screening as a research project, screening for CMV, we, we have followed the infants uh, for a long time now. I'm Pablo Sanchez, I'm a neurotologist and pediatric infectious disease specialist at Nationwide Children's Hospital, Ohio State University. Um, I've been there for about five and a half years. I was uh, in Dallas at UT Southwestern um, for about 27 years. <laughs> And um, so 
I actually started working, I mean, I'm a neonatal infectious disease person, so I, of course, have been interested in congenital COD, and I'm old enough to remember when my colleagues and others would tell me, um, we have a baby with congenital COD, and what would we think, oh, he was quite ill. He really had nothing to offer, nothing to do, really. And um, so it was really kind of a devastating um, time, and because we felt kind of hopeless, um, being an infectious disease specialist, we really were not at the time where we were even offering transactive therapy. And because of that, I actually uh, approached Roach to see if they wanted to do a transactive study. And I was told that the collaborative ethylmyro study group was doing such a study. And that's back in 1995 when I joined the collaborative ethylmyro study group with Rick Whitney and did Kimberly and Suresh and Karen. And then we enrolled babies in the transactive study. We actually were the second highest involvements, and we had only been like five in half the time. And then we were part of the Balgan-Satovir PK study, and then we were part of the six weeks versus six months of Balgan-Satovir. So I've been involved with the um, with the congenital CMB studies um, with um, with Karen and and the, uh, and then part of the CHIME study through Suresh. So um, it's been a great journey because I really think we've made tremendous strides in general CMB. And I also want to say that when Texas mandated newborn hearing screening in 1999, I actually started targeted um, testing of babies with, who had referred to the hearing screen back in 1999. And we have been doing that in Dallas forever. And when I went to Columbus, I was shocked that nobody was doing anything about CMB. And so we started doing that back then as well. It's been a great journey. It's great to be here. It's always exciting to see what how else we can improve the outcomes of these babies. Absolutely. So then, pediatric infectious disease physician um, certainly has had, had no. Um, it wasn't my primary area of interest. And perfect segue from Pablo. Um, I think as being part of the CASG or the UAB, uh, we were involved in the clinical trials, um, and then I was inspired by your group's presentation in Austin as to how you could actually implement a screening program in a large health system. And that's why what that being said, let's try to do it. Um, so two, two, three years later, we, we've gotten somewhere. Um, so that it basically, I think at this point, what I'm interested in this is not only um, the implemented, but the implementation science of it is how you actually implement something that seems important to do uh, and is not generally going to be funded very well, um, and how do you work within your health system in an era of complex medical record systems uh, to actually get something like this done? So that seems like a challenge worth taking. So that's uh, where I am. So, Sunil, what do you like most about your job? I actually actually thought about and I, I think I like translating science into everyday English for people. I think we're uniquely, you know, equipped to do that. And people always complain, doctors don't explain things well enough. And I think as pediatricians, I think we spend a little more time in that. And frankly, as an infection disease specialist, I have a little more time than a busy, busy, I don't know, you know, internist just to see what looks every five minutes has to see a patient. Well, that is not true, not having to do that. But I just like to dissolve. One of my most enjoyable things was making that flyer for the, <laughs> the CMB information flyer, and we really worked on that. So I, that's actually what I like a lot about my job. 
Pablo. So what are you most excited about regarding CMB research advances that are happening now? So I, I think the, um, the, the, what is exciting is how we're moving towards universal testing or screening. I think that's something that is long overdue. And I've really come, I mean, initially, I have to admit, 20, 30 years ago, it's not there. And it's been a process, and I think that, um, I think that people, more and more people are coming on board with that. And I think identifying these babies and then uh, the therapies that are and will be available, I think will also, it's very exciting to have some things. And in the future, I think we need to move into uh, um, more in terms of pregnancy. And so, Eva, what about you? What's, what do you like most about your job? I like to work with kids, but I also like to talk to um, people, for example, about CMV. I was in Denmark last week talking about CMV, of course, <laughs> and, then, and then a lady came in and said, Oh, that's great. No one could believe that you were a doctor. <laughs> and I think it was I think it was a compliment because I understood everything you said. <laughs> so I, I really like to talk to families and, and other professionals working with the kids. That's the most fun. And and to meet the kids themselves. There's there's so much fun. <laughs> Marissa, do you want to say what you like most, or do you want to comment about what are you most excited about in regards to new CMV research advances? I'll let you take either one. Which one you want? Okay. <laughs> um, I'm most excited about education and prevention, and primary prevention in the field of uh, CMV. Mainly in the country where I live, uh, the possibility of screening, universal screening or target screening, I think is not as close as it is for you. So I think uh, the, the work that you are doing in uh, engaging people in this uh, CMV uh, field and educating people and trying to use the knowledge that we have gained so far and spread out the news. <laughs> it's uh, very important and uh, it would be very nice if we could organize such a, a group and uh, pass the message in Brazil also. I'm going to ask them each one last question, sort of general, and then we're going to jump into all of our topics. So if you were not working in the field, I'll start with Eva, what would you be doing instead? I think I would become a, either a gardener or a psychologist. <laughs> Good. Marissa? Um, because I like to organize uh, um, trying to understand how to progress uh, the knowledge. Uh, maybe I would be an engineer. 
Pablo. <laughs> well, first of all, I can't imagine not doing what I'm doing. But Good answer. I, but I would be a theater critic. A what? A theater critic? A theater critic. Oh, I love it. <laughs> I could spend my entire time in the theater. <laughs> Yeah. Um, I was actually going to be an OB, and then the oh. pediatric professor sort of called me and said, no, I'm giving you a spot for the residency program. Anyway, so here I am, it's OB and beans, it's all the same, right? It's part of the medicine. <laughs> but yeah, if I wasn't, then I was actually going to go into bench research, and that would have been fantastic too, so I'd be where I am. The question's not for me, but you and I would be, I'd be a stained glass artist. <laughs> so that's what I want to do in my free time. I have it all set up in the garage and I never do it. Okay. <laughs> so let's talk about CMV. So in your country or your institution, what are you doing regarding newborn screening? I think, I know Sunil's touched upon it a little bit when you presented this morning, but just talk about what's happening at your, just to remind us what's happening at your, oh, sorry, Sunil. Yeah. Sorry, what's happening? Yeah, with screening, like what? I mean, you we, you talked about some this morning, but yeah. newborn screening. Are you what? Are you collecting so, urine, saliva, DBS? So I'm actually, I'm think I'm going to drop the word screening. Um, okay. And um, so I guess maybe I'm finding a term here: universal testing. <laughs> um, not universal in the sense of every baby, and of course, one day we may get universal screening state by state or in the country, right? But uh, I think it's the key is, again, um, you know, as Bob often refers to, is not to miss those babies who may have subtle or subclinical signs that will not be until much later appreciated to be, uh, when it's, you know, too late to, to confirm or treat uh, to be from CMB. So, I think our program basically has uh, morphed from a hearing targeted program to something that uh, on our management algorithm is going to say all babies and think of any risk factors that could be OB history risk factors or any of those long list of possible signs or symptoms, uh, direct them towards um, ideally an infectious disease consult, at least we do have the luxury of of the, having that possible at all our 10 hospitals, uh, as well as then going straight to urine, uh, testing with urine, so skip the saliva test. But of course, for the majority of babies um, who do not have those signs and are going to have this state-mandated urine screen done, they get the saliva swab test. So it's a combination of saliva followed by uh, urine or go straight to urine. And, and again, I'm trying to include all those calls we get from OBs or MFNs where there's some slight suspicion based on serology that an OB sent and wasn't uh, properly interpreted or interpretable, um, uh, or some, as uh, we've all experienced, some non relatively non-specific finding on the prenatal sonogram, and as you know, as the pregnancies get higher risk or women are having uh, pregnancy at higher ages, they get more prenatal sonograms and more incidental findings, such as thickening of the bowel. Well, I'll take all of those and say, all right, there is a slightly higher suspicion. This could be CME. Let's just, if when this baby's born, let's just go straight to urine. So I think that's, and, and I think we just got a gift with this um, medical information officer of our hospital who said, I'm just going to give you a conditional, an automatic order that the nurse can activate, not even bother calling the physician. And I think that was the key. Um, so it happens not 100% time yet, but it happens more in more automated fashion uh, than I would have So that's kind of the, the stage of what we're doing. 
Yeah. Uh, yes. I was going to let them answer these questions, and then I was thinking, this isn't going. I want to pull it open. So let's just start now. Well, I just, it's just following up on that. So I'm from, I'm a Farrington, also a med school professor in Las Vegas. And so I'm in Arizona, and we're thinking about, you know, moving forward with screening or testing, you know. And I just, I want to know, like, um, so you say it's important to have this kind of two-step testing. To catch, you know, like, so if someone refers to the hearing screen, they get this live test, but it could also be have these, like, obstetrical indications, right, these soft markers, that they would also get a test. And is it important to have that kind of two-step? Right, so and on two levels, correct. Like, the completely normal, normal newborn who looks normal, there's no known risk factors for any congenital infection. They go to your, in our, in our case, now state-mandated CMB test because of the initial hearing. Screen. Not waiting for the repeat hearing screen, which can happen two weeks or may never happen if you not come back. Just get it. Um, and then the other is, as we've been done, this, these programs have led to increased awareness. So now there's more talk about CMB among our neonatologists, hospitalists, pediatricians, where, as, as I think Bubba referred to, before that they said, well, CMB can't do anything about it anyway. Well, there's something we can do about it, but more importantly, just knowing about it gives at least some kind of answer to the parent, and that itself is a lot of value. So the second the, the increase risk babies is, um, is to increase, and then I think it like feeds on itself. There's more awareness, there'll be more detection of the lower risk, um, the soft sign babies. So I think that double system, I think, is better than just going for one target. Yes, please. So I want to comment on that because I... I run into this, I think also what you're getting at is the recommendation of one of the salivary organ and whether then that causes confusion. And I've actually struggled with that thought because I think that saliva, CMB, PCR testing would be fine. But my problem, my, at the same time, I say, well, I also just want to go to the confirmatory test as, as a, ID neonatology, you know, someone who knows that I'm going to, that if the baby tests positive for saliva, I, before I do anything, I'm going to do the urine PCR test. I've had three false positives so far. And so before I go into anything, I'm going to get them. However, then making the recommendation that in some babies I would just go straight to urine PCR, it, it's, you know, it's like, it's not one recommendation. And then it leaves them with the option and then end up Maybe not even getting in. So I I struggle with that. I think ultimately with universal testing, it's going to be just saliva. At least by current, if we're using our current studies, it'll be saliva. Um, and I think that it's fine that we just test them anyway with saliva. And then maybe if it's positive, we'll just have to get them. But I struggle with that because I know that if I have a baby who has a panthomegalyphromosalopenia, then I think this is CMV. I just want to go straight to the source and just say, you know, I don't have to wait for the saliva to become positive. At my institution, I know within 24 hours anyway. But in many institutions, it's a matter of sending it elsewhere where you're not going to go for three to five days and then another three to five days and by that time you're waiting for a while. So I struggle with that. And I kind of want to just say saliva and then forget it and I'll deal with the rest. But um, I would say nothing. Yeah. Yeah. 
do you, do you have the same thing? Well, I, I think, I mean, you know, listening to Chris and about messaging. Messaging is really important. Two, for two things. One, we all have to be consistent. We all use the same language to joke. So I, I understand why you want to drop the screening, but we just, we, our screening is being reviewed by Rust. So I, I think we all need to, I mean, we don't want to really cause confusion in terms of, and there's enough confusion already, right? And then also the same thing with the, if you have two tier system, if you have this and do this, if you have this and do this, you know, I think we probably make it more simple for everybody, not just the providers, but everybody to follow, you know, so, so it'd be easier. I mean, you're talking about implementation science. One of the key things in implementation science is keep it as simple as possible and then consistently possible. So what you're saying then is that you would just recommend saliva even no matter what. Is that what you're saying? Well, I mean, I guess we tend as clinicians, and especially infectious disease clinicians, we make really, we, we think too much. We make things really complicated, right? So, I, I, as, as, a, as if I wear my ID hat, I would say, well, if you're testing for a baby for clinical reasons, then you would do whatever is the best to make the diagnosis, right? And then if you're screening, then you do this. But, but I think we need to really step back and maybe hopefully, uh, you know, just come up with a simple answer, you know, that would satisfy most people. So rather than, that would yes. be, so like, so just so like, no, I struggle with this, and I have to, when I speak on it, I have that two-tier system, exactly what you, you, you do. And, but at the same time, with the caveat that if you can't get the urine, just do the saliva and send the baby home, like somebody mentioned earlier. Yeah. I would never have kept that baby in much longer. I would have just said, just do the saliva. Right. I, would, I, would do that. Yeah. I think the distinction is, you know, when you're taking care of a baby that you have some sort of suspicion that's entirely different. But we're talking about identifying as many babies as possible. And that would only be possible by testing as many babies as you can. You know, whether, you know, it's related to me, whether it's expanded targeted screening or universal. So, you know, you, I mean, I think we need to have a simple messaging, consistent messaging, uh, and uh, and also, uh, you know, recommend, you know, one method which is, you know, different options at different scenarios. And to piggyback on that, um, Dr. Sanchez, I appreciate your two-tiered your two component. However, unfortunately, as parents, we've experienced physicians who don't have a clue, unfortunately. Um, you know, my my son was very characteristically symptomatic, petechiae, um, low, high bilirubin, I mean, lots of things. And the, the, what I was told is, oh, you had a fast labor. And so I think if you, we go collectively as a community towards saliva, obviously your professional judgment still resides in that. And you can say, we have these indicators, I want to go straight to urine. I don't think that saliva would exclude the ability for a physician to utilize their own judgment. And so I think to get there faster and to get the, the most significant number, just following that saliva, um, and then as an ID doctor and I see, you know, a neonatologist, then utilizing your professional judgment. And that's what we do. Yeah. But I just want to throw in others. They could be a baby born with normal hearing, but has the other features. That would be 
that baby then would not go into the saliva screening protocol. Right, and that, I mean, that would be my son, because right. he still, at six years old, has hearing. No hearing loss. And, and, and that, has, and, and it has CMP, right? Yes. So, that baby, if we go with only saliva for only hearing failed babies, that baby would have been missed. So, that, that's why I feel like you need that other side of your brain to think of not... I'm talking about universal. Well, Comprehensive universal. No, of course. That's, I'm with, I think yeah. what I'm talking about is while you're still waiting for universal, right. what can we do at a local Absolutely. But the universal will eventually be saliva, and then, I mean, it's kind of like if you suspect the baby may have um, sickle cell or hypothyroidism, I mean, we would do the screen anyway, but then we test them, right. you know, Okay, and I'm going to let Eva make a comment, and then you're next. And then I, there's people in the back of the room you haven't seen. Yes, we'll keep going. And I'm in Sweden. I'm really pro-general screening because we can't find all the kids. We will find only a small, small part if we do it through the hearing screen. But I know it's like swearing in the church, but we use tripod transport. <laughs> I think you, I think you might have it a little bit different opinion. I think the most important is to find the kids. Exactly. So I think to test everyone, even if Tide Facebook will lose some of the kids, we will find a lot more than earlier. Um, and it's easy because we have the system to collect this water. And, and let's check out Toronto too now because it is not the first of July. And we do find 0.5% in Sweden, exactly the same numbers um, as US throughout the drive So I think it's. Um, if I can help you feel not as bad about saliva, is the fact that as parents who likely have another child at home, waiting for the urine test is like a lot harder than you would think it would be because the baby doesn't always pee in the, you know, when you're at the pediatrician. Um, my daughter who has CMB, I almost left because she didn't pee and we were going to travel a week later and I needed to get home and pack and all the life stuff. And she was SGA but didn't have a ton of other symptoms. So I was like, you know, with the urine, you need a greater amount of parental consent than with the saliva. Like you're asking a parent to wait or bring it home or bring it back with my third child. I knew that we wanted to confirm that she didn't have CMB, even though I was extremely low risk, and she pooped in the urine bag. So I was like, oh my gosh, this is such a hard method to deal with when I have other kids at home, and this or the bag came off when I brought it home. You know, it's just a little more tangled, even if it's more accurate. And actually, and that's, that's been the, the biggest um, um, argument against universal testing for all babies, um, because it has come up, and you would not believe at medical meetings where people will come up and say, why not do urine? And exactly, I'm glad that you're voicing that this is true. Um, so, uh, my name is Liz, I'm uh, copying our MRP's ID doc as well, um, but also work in a state health department in New York, in New York State Health Department. And um, so I'm a newbie on the scene and look to a lot of other states and to all of you for uh, various experience on this, but one lesson learned. I think the question initially was about Arizona and maybe um, looking to take some efforts. And one of our lessons learned 
in the recent New York State um, legislative efforts was in relation to the specificity of which it states urine PCR. So I think giving a little more flexibility to uh, facilities and um, health departments to do either that's equivalent would be helpful in creating uh, laws, as well as the fact that uh, universal, obviously dry blood spot or saliva would be the way to go and urine would be very cumbersome and we can't imagine trying to implement that. And I thought the same for our hearing targeted screening in New York State. Um, but interestingly, when you're looking at a state with really wide ranges of rural and urban, um, the really big hospitals like Dr. Sood's um, would not want to have to go through the cumbersome urine screening. But some of the small hospitals that may only run into this six to eight times a year really consistently have told me they want to avoid learning how to do a new test because nurses in the newborn nursery don't usually do any kind of salivary testing and have to deal with what if it's positive, it could be a false positive, where they're very used to urine testing for other reasons, rule out sepsis or urine tox. So as much as I thought they would hate urine, actually the smaller hospitals seemed much more interested in finding that as a way to screen versus the larger hospitals that thought, no way, saliva all the way, which was an interesting lesson for me. And actually, as, um, I've been to some hospitals in I believe in New York, and their protocol has been in the newborn nurseries to collect the urine on every baby who is, you know, in the first few hours, first day, and then they store, put it in the refrigerator, and then if they don't pass the hearing screen, then they send it for PCR or culture, whatever protocol they have. And they prefer it than instituting another salon. I do think with, and I think it would be important in, in New York, because, and with all of these state-mandated ones, is to actually educate what the test should be. Because when you look at, and I don't know if somebody's from here from Utah, but when you look at the Utah experience that they wrote, I mean, some of them were doing CMDIGMs and who knows what else they were doing. I really think that the education of the providers who take care of these babies is going to be really important as you move forward. So this is a really interesting conversation, and I and Allison work in the National Center for Hearing Assessment Management. And I'm just thinking about um, what can we learn from other newborn screening conditions that, that have some similar parallels. And, you know, especially when we're thinking that um, consistent language is extremely important. And maybe it is screening and confirmatory, like I've heard in, in some other sessions today. So I'm wondering, you know, just thinking of um, newborn hearing screening, because that's kind of my wheelhouse, as well as uh, Stephanie, who is from Utah, um, is, is thinking, well, with most babies at a population-based level, there is the screening piece, right? And, and that makes sense on a large scale. But the moving to confirmatory is not out of the ordinary. So thinking about a NICU baby that has risk factors that go beyond, you know, um, something that, you know, most babies have, they move to a higher screener, right? They move to more of an ABR test maybe versus an OAE test. And so it's not unusual um, to, to move to a different test depending on what the baby is showing symptomatically or asymptomatically. And, and to me, I don't think that that would be a hard public health message to send. But again, I'm not a clinician, so I'm not really sure, you know, in terms of um, the messaging on the clinician end, but in, in the population level and public health level, um, it, it would not be a stretch. 
and I agree. And the good thing with CMD is that we have two to three weeks. It's not like we have, you know, just one day. changed a lot with the 
um, get some of your treatment studies with the treatment studies. I think that really revolutionized a lot of our care for congenital skin defects. You have to remember that a lot of that was related to the AIDS epidemic when Gansacovir was shown to be effective against the, um, the CMD retinitis in the early 80s in these patients. And so, you know, I think Rich Whitley and David Kimmelin, the study that was done in the 1990s, that showed that there was some protection um, with all the problems with the study, because there was 50% loss to follow-up. But I think with all of that, there seemed to be some hearing protection from being from receiving six weeks of IV cancer. And then, you know, we have the oral therapy. And, I mean, I see them in my clinic. I don't, they're not even admitted. I mean, I don't even want them. I want them to come to my clinic rather than staying in the uh, newborn nursery and having somebody else talk to them. So I think all of that would make tremendous strides in identification. And I do think that we are identifying less I mean, very babies would otherwise look pretty normal. Um, I think we've made tremendous strides in identifying a lot of babies. Um, the SGA babies also, the babies who, um, you know, prenatally may have had some issues that at birth they look completely normal with normal growth patterns. So I, I think that's been really successful. And I think that the, um, you know, the, the, the support groups that these families have been, such as the CMB Foundation and other support groups, have been tremendous for these parents. And they really want to do something about it, like all of you want to. And I think it's been a really exciting time to see how we've moved the field forward. And I think that it's, it's, it's great. And I'm, so I'm, I'm definitely hopeful for more identification of these babies. Because even if you don't treat them, they need hearing evaluations periodically, if nothing else. Right. And then okay. you some logic. Good answer, but I'm going to cut you off. <laughs> so I just want to add to a little challenge to Pablo. I think we, I think let's expand the word for treatment because in the same time that Valley Encyclopedia was coming along, we had hearing aids, we had everything, and there's been a revolution of the quality that the hearing aids provided, you know, early before they weren't put on to children until much later. Now they're put on very early. And so that's another form of treatment. So let's make sure we understand that. I know that we tend to think of the, you know, Valium Cyclovir as the only treatment, but we really do have many other options for these kids. So that's all I wanted to say before we jump into. Hi, I'm going to trick you all and switch it up and ask a pregnancy question. And I know none of you are OBs, but you wanted to be an OB, so. <laughs> okay, and I'm going to do a two-part question, so I'm, I can get That's two fine. and one here. Um, and I did not get to attend the, the talk on the immunoglobulin treatment, so I'm hoping you guys did, and you can give us a little info on that. So my question is, can you kind of briefly describe the what you guys have recently heard about treatment during pregnancy? And then do you feel that once we hopefully get the screening piece of this all accomplished, more of the focus and attention can go back to, you know, the pregnancy and how do we either prevent it during pregnancy or treat it during pregnancy. Yes, um, I feel because actually, uh, uh, CMB Foundation, I think through them, they actually sent, um, referred some um, moms to me who were going to, you know, who were pregnant and had been given uh, some scary advice by the OB or MFM, uh, based on really what ended up being false positive CMB tests. So I'm actually quite emphatic about this with all the OBs in my health system. I mean, I, 
don't want them testing forms routinely for CMV because it leads to a lot of confusion and over-testing. In this case, we're going to go for an amniopcr and possible termination of pregnancy when it turns out it wasn't even CMV. So I do not, I would love for OBs to educate uh, the pregnant moms on prevention. At this point, I'm not aware of any data that says that CMV immunoglobulin is definitively uh, preventive treatment to prevent transmission. There's a study just ended um, in the United States. We'll be hearing this results pretty soon. CMV hyperimmunoglobulin. Mm -hmm. So at this point, I think OB's role is only counseling for prevention and making sure they get in touch with the neonatologist, pediatrician, or infectious disease specialist well in time so we're prepared to do whatever testing we decide mm -hmm. in our hospital. Uh, right. In my case, that would be actually urine if I get that phone call. Right. Um, so that's my sort of simple view of Marissa, did OB. you, you were going to add something? Yes, I think this is important uh, prevention for everybody. Because we know that even those uh, CMV seropositive women can get infected, secondary <laughs> infection. So uh, it's very important that uh, all the pregnant women are aware of how to prevent the CMV during pregnancy, even those that are not, uh, uh, does not have a baby at home, it would be very important that we all know the uh, people working in healthcare um, reach pregnant women to give that message. Speaking towards um, pregnant women, um, I know that acyclovir is good for helping um, help these HSV infection for preventing, for reducing the risk of transmission from mother to baby. Has valium acyclovir ever been treated or tried or, or with women while pregnant to help reduce if they are known to be CMV positive? The mother has that has that ever been studied or tried? Or, to help reduce transmission, maternal fetal transmission. Volga is not uh, allowed during pregnancy. Yeah, there, there are a uh, few studies using volcyclovir, but in, in higher dose, but the, the results are not definitive yet. So, uh, as far as we know, no uh, treatment so far is allowed during pregnancy is efficacious. You know, you have to remember that, and I tell the families this, that when I, and and that's another thing, is that I don't like treating them, um, you know, just with a phone call and then telling the neonatologist or pediatrician to just start the Gansacovir or the Gansacovirizing. Because I really, I spend a lot of time talking to the families because you have to remember that gansaclovir in high doses of laboratory animals is a teratogen, a carcinogen, and it's been associated with gonadal dysgenesis. And I tell them that. And yet, I tell them that none of that has been seen in the appropriate doses that have been studied. 
and that I feel very comfortable with it. Again, Sepulchre has been given to people at sort of least for the 80s, at least a lot of it. And our transplant patients are on it for long periods of time, and our, you know, in the 1990s, all those babies were on it, and that, so there has not been any of that seen. So because of that also, there's been concern about getting into pregnancy. However, I, I do think that we, we should study it to see does it cross the placenta, what levels do you get in the fetus? Because if I have a baby who's born at 24, 23 weeks who has severe disease or has disease, I'm going to treat them. And I know that the collaborative antibiotic study group is doing PK studies in babies that's at 32 weeks of cancer, and we need to look at it without cancer. So I think that has to be in the future to see whether you're going to cross the placenta. I don't know if Suresh has any of that if we, if we know that. Um, I am told that there may be the, uh, that Falcon Sacrifice may be look, looking at, that the French may be looking at it, but I'm, I can't confirm it. <laughs> I just have a, um, a question. Since everyone on the panel said they're interested in um, translational, you know, medicine, how to, how to implement, how it affects families and kids, right? Um, from the parent perspective, as, as you're implementing these screening or testing programs, and you're catching more babies, and interacting with more families, right, in the NICU, early on in the clinic. Do you have counseling for that clinician who's going to be delivering the diagnosis about, or do you have advice, or can everyone speak to, how do you deliver that diagnosis? Because I can tell you, when I got the diagnosis in the NICU, which is a possible where I was teaching, there, um, I guess neonatology resident held me, hugged me, and whispered in my ear, this is my worst nightmare. And that is not the way you do diagnosis. <laughs> so, you know, people don't know about it, right? Clinicians don't know about it. They, you know, it's a spectrum, right? And all the research science seems, seems to be like there is no predictive outcomes of where, you know, besides maybe some of the, um, you know, triad of, of a symptomatic diagnosis of microcephaly, but really outcomes are really variable. So can everyone speak to maybe like how can we, is that part of what your management when you have these screenings, when you are interacting with more families, and can it be, and how would you deliver that? For the hearing impaired kids, it's often me that give them diagnosis because they aren't even, they didn't even know about systemic otherwise before they come to, to um, try for, for the cochlear implant. But uh, I, I have I have heard the same story as you tell us. And uh, it's, it's, it's not easy. We should work on that. Yes. <laughs> I will tell you that I, all, in general, all of the babies are in the pregnancy, they get sent to me. So I'm the one who talks to them all. At age 12. Did you 64? <laughs> I, I actually have a fellow, but I agree that we need that. That is very important. Um, I think, as with all the congenital infections, we oftentimes give the wrong message to the families because that's it's not true. Um, and I'm a neonatologist, and I know fully that we cannot predict the future. I mean, a lot of these grade fours, you know, bad IVHs, and they're doing fine when you see them in follow. So I, I, I think it's extremely important when you're, when one speaks with any parent with any baby's condition 
that we can't destroy the hope because it's um, we we just have to optimize what that baby can do in the future. And it's not. I mean, I I can tell them, and they parents want to know. I said, you know, these are some of the things that could happen. But he may just be developing at a slower rate, and we need to follow them, and we need to optimize what therapies are available. And I, I really, I mean, I, I deal a lot with congenital syphilis because that's really where I started. And you know, my parents, they're told they're going to be deaf, dumb, and blind. And I'm like, absolutely not. I mean, that's so. I hear you. And I think that there's a lot of education that needs to be told to um, healthcare professionals who are caring for these families. And I think that is extremely important for us, not only with CMD, but with any baby, any baby, not to, um, you know, not to take away that hope because we can work through it and we can optimize the therapies. And we have no idea where that child's potential really is. And on the other hand, I don't think you should downplay, like, the, the doctors that when you come in and he's like, oh, don't worry, you're not going to have CMB. Your baby doesn't have it. Or your baby doesn't have hearing loss. I just flew it on the ears. I think it's important. And if we're going to start to do universal screening, we're going to have a lot of asymptomatic babies. So you don't want to completely frighten the family before you even confirm that it is a true positive. So you're right. We get, so we've got to be good on the messaging all the way across the board, I think. And that comes with the hearing. And just to add on to that, so, you know, all volunteer national CMB foundations, I think that's important, you know, that part is like how to deliver the diagnosis and how once you're catching the kids, you know, how do we talk about it? And I will also just like to say as a mother of a child who is, has all the things you could possibly have with CMV, you know, that, that, um, you know, that a success story is not always beating the diagnosis. The success story is sometimes meeting the kid where they're at, and my son, who has limited mobility and hearing loss and microcephaly and seizures and all the things, he's driving a power chair with his head switches. He's telling his SLP therapist he doesn't want to play with that toy, you know, with his eye gaze. And that's success, too, and I understand that parents don't want, you know, can maybe hear that message right at the beginning, but, um, and maybe that's not your place to say it, but just to put it in the back of your mind. Right, just to remember that the success story is not the kid that only has hearing loss or the kid that only has balance issues, but like our kids are success stories too. I think it would be great if you could, if the parents could draft, could write something to that effect. And it shouldn't be more than, you know, just even one sheet. Like we tell information to the parents about what CMV is, what, you know, we have a sheet for it. If we just have one small pamphlet that just and we can get to the parents about the, uh, I think that'd be a great service. Um, I just wanted to push you a little bit more on Amanda's question um, regarding awareness amongst pregnant women. How do you have that conversation, um, and what would the ideal messaging look like to you if we're trying to make them aware of CMV and they want to know if they can be tested for it? Because um, that's inevitably the next question. Do you just say there's not a reliable test, watch out, you know, exercise hygienic precautions just doesn't quite seem to cut it as, as the end point in that conversation? Well, I think the problem with the testing is, and and I don't, I'm not, and I agree with APOC that um, we don't need to treat, to, um, we don't need to test because I think that 
were sending the wrong message. I've had pediatricians come to me, women, female pediatricians pregnant, to say, well, I'm seeing BITG positive, I don't, I'm, I'm protected, I don't need to do anything. You, don't, you can't believe how many people think that way. And it's so wrong. And I think that um, if you test a woman who's CMV IgG negative, you're going to give her this, you know, the, the precautions about how it's transmitted and how we unfortunately share a lot of body fluids in our lifetime. And how, and then if she's CMV IgG positive, the same message needs to be told. So, I think that if you if we do test because the woman definitely wants to know for whatever reason, you, it needs to be told even before that the same precautions need to be told. And so that needs to be part of the education. That has to be part of preconceptual counseling. And and the message has to be that it doesn't matter if you're positive or negative. Um, so Resh has shown that reinfections can be as severe as um, as primary. And so. And it just worries me that the CMBIGG positive woman is going to feel so-called safe, and then it's going to be even be worse. Okay, the back of you got to kind of get some questions. This group right here on these two rows are taking over. All right, go. Can I, can I just mention, I'm, I'm sorry. But however, once we were to get to a treatment, then I think that, yes, absolutely, we need to screen to see if she converts and then institute therapy. And the IVIG trial, the Sadagam trial by the NIH and the maternal fetal networks got stopped early for futility. When do you expect those results out? Do you, does anybody know? For the for the one that's going on right now, for IG, HIG? Oh, they pushed it to 2020? They're doing follow-up as well. Yeah, they're doing some follow-up, and then, yeah, I was thinking, I was hoping it would be 2019, but Janelle has the latest. The final follow-up is going to be November 2020. Okay, he said that the final follow-up is going to be November 2020. So in talking about the IgG positive and the secondary infection, I know that there was um, a, the information that I, in my research, or what looking through, was that the risk is far less with a secondary infection than primary. And I know that, that that conversation has changed. But do we have any data or statistics on that those reinfection rates or um, the probability of the seroconversion? And the secondary infections, well, the problem with uh, precisely uh, understand what the risk is, is because we do not have uh, good ways of diagnosing secondary infections. Uh, we do have uh, one assay, but it's not uh, very sensitive. And using this assay, we've shown that uh, secondary infections might occur in something between, uh, it depends on the population, but in a, a very zero, highly seropositive population, it might occur between 10% to uh, 40, 60% annually. 
in a in a in different populations. Of course, if it's a lower seroprevalence population, the risk of secondary infections, as we understand now, are lower is lower uh, because of the virus reservoir that uh, the woman is exposed to. So, uh, it, it, and also, it can happen uh, re reinfection and, re and reactivation of a latent infection. And we do not have ways of diagnosing reactivation of the latent infection. Thank you, interrupt you, but I wanted to just piggyback on that real quick because um, my daughter was born severely affected uh, by CMV, and I, when she was about two, I found my American Red Cross blood donor card from when I was in college, and it said CMV positive on it. And so I just wanted to throw that out there as one one avenue maybe of finding out that information after the fact. Yes, we do know. I I was uh, in that. I was talking about the risk of a woman acquire infection, secondary infection, depends on the population and transmission to the the baby is possible. We exactly do not know what's what's the rate of transmission, but it's. Uh, if you look overall, all the seropositive women, it's uh, around um, one to two percent. But we do not know if the women acquire, for instance, a secondary infection. What the rate is for that woman? Uh, and also, we do know that disease can occur as occurred with your baby in, in our population, which is a very highly seropositive population, we do have 10% of the babies infected after a secondary infection, symptomatic, and half of them are severely symptomatic. Um. My son was um, born at one hospital here locally and then had to be um, transferred here to UAB um, about a week later for more intense care. And um, I found it interesting because on both of his doors at both hospitals, there was a large sign with a picture of a pregnant woman um, that said, no pregnant care provided, please. So um, I find that there is a disconnect on what... So we're telling healthcare providers don't come in here and care for this child because you're pregnant. But you know, like I'm also a healthcare provider and I take care of transplant patients and took care of lots of probably CMV positive patients. I never got that, you know. Um, and so I just just feel like there's a disconnect somewhere in communication for pregnant women. Obviously, you know, like not everybody gets that sign. But that sign was wrong. That sign was wrong, and I think it highlights the education that has to be given not only to women and, and families, but also <coughs> to healthcare providers. 
because um, I run into this a lot in the neonatal ICU. Um, and the nurses, there's a pregnant nurse who doesn't want to take care. We, I mean, we ran into this with HIV. And, um, and we, and I tell them, I said, you may decide not to take care of the baby who you know is positive, but I can assure you that there's going to be a lot more other babies who are positive elsewhere who have not been identified. And unfortunately, we tend to be a little bit more careful, actually, with the ones we know, rather than the ones we don't know, although we should be using the same precautions throughout. And I mean, and I tell that, and this comes up a lot. I mean, I've had parents ask me they're going to have a, a birthday party for the sibling, and can they, the pregnant mother of one of the siblings, I'm like, they're not going to cast in beat of being in this baby. I mean, those are my questions too. Yeah. After I had my son, well, you know, I've got her. Do I need to tell the daycare? Well, raising my arm because we're going to hurt his teacher. My girl's teacher was pregnant, so do I need to tell her? She needs to get tested. Experience when my daughter's been in the hospital for something non-contagious like a seizure, they won't let her walk down to the toy room with the other kids. Mm -hmm. And I had to email them and say that is not right, and you can't do that. You can't exclude her because you're trying to protect your staff, and that's that's mm -hmm. right. So, but this brings up um, another question I was going to ask is, what do you all think of the current state of the research on prevention, and where are we at with that? I want to comment, but I wanted to comment. I think that that. If that happens, um, it's not just telling the nurse or the pediatrician may know nothing. I think you need to go up and see who is the, the hospital epidemiologist or infection control person, because that I think we need to we are we need to teach people. Similar, we need to teach the OBs, the the parents. We need to teach the healthcare providers there. And so I think you need to escalate that. As soon as I get a paycheck, and that's not the hospital protocol. So I think that that sometimes is just a little bit happening on the floor, and they don't realize what the actual protocol is. And I think that was great that you that you did escalate it because I think that's the only we we have we have to teach other people all the time, not just on CFD. And I think just to piggyback on what Pablo was saying, I think that offers us as parents a great opportunity to make that change on the grassroots level as we've kind of found that it happens in our city hospitals, county states, and things like that. I know National Safety has a lot of great materials, especially as you're talking about um, daycare issues, issues with nurses or the home health care providers or education providers. Um, I think we have that opportunity and we are a viable national foundation to be able to educate those people and bring them to the table. And there are so many times that I know over the years that we've seen small policy changes happen at the hospital levels, university the hospitals, and things like that just because a parent went in. Um, and it's really not as hard as state legislation. So I encourage you. I want to know what you all think about where we're at with prevention and the research well, I think that prevention, uh, it depends on the socioeconomic context and, uh, for instance, in what would work in our, in my country would not be, uh, the best way to, to go in your country. So I think it's still a challenge. 
we do have some uh, studies published studies even from Dr. Fowler that finished uh, recently a study you should tell us uh, <laughs> and uh, it it looks like it works yeah <laughs> Yeah, so we're going to have a, a prevention panel in the morning. I'm going to talk a little bit more about this, but yes, I think we've seen that women are willing to change their behavior. And I, don't, I see all the heads nodding that of the parents. They know that this is possible. We get pushed back. But I will tell you something that's happened that's kind of interesting. I think a lot of you know, but maybe some of the others in the room don't know, that for the, the first organization, the, the Royal, the Australian and New Zealand Royal, I read it all mixed up, but the OBs and guys equivalent to ACOG put out at the end of March a statement where they're recommending that women get during pregnancy information about hygiene and prevention. So this is the first official organization that's done this. So this is kind of exciting. And they based it, they said, well, okay, we don't, the problem is, this is the criticism we get from ACOG is that we don't have a randomized clinical trial. We have that shows that they can change behaviors, but we haven't taken it because those weren't powered to show whether it can, it can decrease maternal infection or congenital infection. There is Maria Grazia Ravella's paper where she did show in a combination observation intervention that she, they decreased seral conversion. And we think the same would happen with non-primary. So that's kind of the criticism. It's kind of a catch-22 because then to do such a larger study, it costs money, and it's hard to get funding to do that. But we need to do those studies. I agree. Well, we have that. So, But what's interesting is they come out with this, and within a week, there's a GP in Australia who writes and says, oh, this is going to be terribly hard to do, and it's going to break up the bonds of the parent and the child, and I just don't have time to do all this. And so you immediately get pushback. And hopefully Kate in Australia is the lead of, of uh, CMB Australia, and some of the others there will respond to him. I know Bill Rawlinson from Australia is here, um, and there's some other people, and they may can comment more about what's going on with it. But that's kind of exciting. And then there's also, can I say about, okay. So the Na um, National CMB Foundation, they just sent, um, it's the committee, What's your committee? Education and Outreach Committee Direct for Healthcare Providers. Right. And it's being um, co-led by an OB and Dr. Gail from, um, from Baylor, New Texas, with the PACE ID. And so and they just sent a letter to ACOG, and since um, Kim's an OB, she's hoping that she can get some traction. So they're reaching out to ACOG, and they're going to try to have some conversations. So there is that push, and we'll see, and see how it goes. But I think having an OB going, who's a member, going to talk will maybe help. So that's kind of what where we're at, and we'll talk a little bit more about it tomorrow. Yeah, I would say that was a letter direct to um, to ACOG from, from Novi from Texas, who served on the committee previously, and it's in relation to practice goals 151, and we're, you know, asking to be reconsidered for language and counseling. So um, this was actually in the works prior to Australia and New Zealand publishing that in their bulletin, but we're excited about a potential response to understand what they need, and we hope to reciprocate and move quickly on that. Um, and then I would just also add that, as you'll notice, there's no OBs here at this potential conference. Um, and so we are really hoping to make impact and get them involved in some of these CMB-related conferences going forward. I know the foundation has had a lot of luck talking with nurses and midwives, for example, uh, doulas and other people who are really um, at the forefront of delivery and labor. So 
that's a potential avenue for some of us to get involved and help educate as Thank you. <clears throat> Excuse me, it's Pam Power Centre. I'm on um, the yes. Yes, I'm passionate. Mm -hmm. I just like to speak up, and I'm here just to say we're here, and I'm here with uh, Bob Dillisi as well, and we're part of the team um, that the uh, Radical, your equivalent, um, asked us to comment on the, um, the guidance paper or policy. So, so we're very pleased and very chuffed that uh, a lot of what we just came through in that. I've only just been here for about 48 hours, and I just heard about this. Uh, GP from Perth, so I have to go and read the report, but uh, yeah, very pleased. And we face exactly the same problems in Australia, um, you know, regarding this terrible infection control misunderstanding. Really, uh, sitting here upset to hear that, um, you know, you, you're singled out for, uh, you know, false infection control practices. So we also have treatment. We, at, at our site, which is Sydney Children's Hospital Randwick, we have a lot of education because we are uh, obviously committed to it. Everyone has standard precautions, so you know. So I have feels the you know you've got <laughs> that sort of wrong infection control messages. So we've got two people from Australia, and there's more actually. You can talk about how that came to be, and I'm going to like call on you tomorrow morning if we have time for discussion. I say what your experience was with the committee. Do we like to hear? <laughs> That's just sort of a warning. <laughs> Okay, another question? Hi, I'm wondering if kind of the consensus or decision right now is not to routinely test pregnant women for CMV. Um, what is being done to educate doctors or ultrasound technicians to protect those mothers that do have an active CMV infection so that they are caught? It's like, it sort of feels like you're prioritizing those women that have an asymptomatic infection or don't have CMV at all, does that make sense? It's coming from a mom that had an infection that wasn't caught, even though there was many signs and markers because of lack of education. So is, your, is your question about uh, how to educate others to recognize CMV primary infection during pregnancy? Yeah, I'm curious if there's anything being done in lieu of testing everybody. Is there right. anything being done to help be identified more readily. So I mean, I do, uh, I, I do see OBs uh, testing for, um, I guess, what we call uh, a, a, um, a viral type illness that's not from an obvious common cold or something. You know, that's not a respiratory illness. And I think with that, OBs actually good because they'll send the usual workup for a, a acute mono-like illness is what you know it's often called, right? So you have some maybe some sore throat, um, some lymph nodes, fever, sometimes uh, hepatitis, uh, and then they will actually send CMV and EBV titers at least in general. I see that that is the case. So um, that way it actually does that actually does sometimes lead to a diagnosis of primary CMV infection proven, and then we're sort of you know uh, more aware of what what to expect. So I don't, I don't know uh, what OBs normally, but yeah, I think they would not miss that obvious presentation. But I think the bigger problem is the asymptomatic acquisition. Right? They won't always present as a febrile illness to the pregnant mom, and, and that is only prevent. Primary prevention is the only way to prevent acquisition. I, I think the OBs are good at. Detecting it when the fetus seems to be more severely involved. 
that they do a behavioral ultrasound for whatever, you know, the, for, um, less fetal growth or, you know, fungal height, whatever, or they do a routine ultrasound and then there's ventricular, um, you know, the ventricular, um, enlargement, you know, there can, so I think for more severe involvement, I think the OBs are good at detecting that, whether it's by serology or potentially by amniotic fluid PCR. For, and it's not just for CMV, but they look for other things. You know, they do tests for syphilis and they do the toxo, whatever other tests that they do. So I think those are, um, I think they're they're good at. Um, and I agree then with Sunil that the less obvious infection, I don't think they're very good. But I will say that as a pediatric infectious person, we're not very good at detecting them even. I mean, does anybody even remember when they were, when they turned serious in positive? I mean, they've probably just had a cold sometime. The monolike illness is the rare manifestation. And, you know, a lot of people get CMV during their lifetime, yet we don't test them routinely, even, you know, when they have colds or anything like that, because uh, we don't know if that's true, true and related. So I, I think the whole issue of CMV is, is a difficult diagnosis sometimes to make. Um, aside from the acute monolite illness with other things. Um, and even, um, you know, an immunocompromised host as well. We follow their tighter, you know, their, their viral loads and stuff like that. But I don't think that we're good at detecting, um, subclinical type infections, or even thinking that this URI, that cold, that, I mean, they, that it could be CMV. So I think we probably need better um, overall knowledge about it. But, so unfortunately, I don't think we're there. And I think some of it is the fact that our GMs are not very good. And um, I think I'm probably telling you, and uh, in Italy, better in other countries from Europe, but uh, in most cases, the pregnant women would like to have the testes uh, at the beginning of the pregnancy. Because in most cases, the pregnant women would like to know the uh, CMV status. Probably in our countries, the serum prevalence is not so high. And uh, for example, in Italy, uh, between 60-70%, uh, and uh, in other, in Germany, was uh, is uh, about 50%. Uh, so, and uh, another, because uh, in um, when I discuss with um, with these uh, pregnant women, they like to know very well which is the problem, and for uh, the the newborn, they like to know. Uh, all uh, um, the prevention and the information about the prevention, and then for any uh, positive results uh, or uh, particularly for primary infection, they would like to have uh, the prenatal diagnosis. And uh, this is very, very common in uh, Europe, in Italy, but in another part of uh, Europe. So, uh, in this moment, it's true we don't have nothing for the for the pregnancy. We don't know the treatment. We don't uh, offer nothing. And uh, but uh, uh, this is uh, a very hard problem. And uh, uh, every time when I discuss uh, with the, the the women, every time I, the the answer is okay. 
I would like to test and then I decide which is uh, how to continue the pregnancy, how to have the prevention of the other. But it's the first time I would like the test. This is uh, uh, this is the experience in our in our country. So. And I don't know if any of you can speak to this, but um, you know, I, as, a, as the director of the uh, CAD Public Health and Policy Conference, we very rarely have any OBs attend that meeting as well. And um, there, like three weeks ago, I think there was a CMB maternal infection meeting held in Florence. And I'm just wondering why, like, and, and there were quite a few OBs present at that meeting. And so I'm wondering, just thinking about joining forces and um, why why there's separate conferences for a maternal infection CMB and then more of a once it's acquired and what's happening with the kiddos after the fact. I don't know if any of you can right. speak to that, but right. I just it just seems like there's a disconnect between the two areas. I'll just say that conference was a maternal and congenital infection meeting and um, that was held and. Um, and they wanted to focus on Europeans and, and others also, but um, there's there. So I think what we've got to do, they still, they may have had, you know, there has been historically, I think, more OBs involved in Europe than we've had in the United States. So um, I think, and for example, um, like in Belgium for years, they screened um, pregnant women um, for CV, but I was just told by Arnaud that the new medical officer, whatever whatever official title is, she's an MD and, and an OB. I think she's an OB, but she's decided they don't want to do that anymore. And so that's like a real shock because they've been doing it in Belgium for years and years and years. So things change. I do think there's one group that we should try to target in the United States, and it's the Infectious Disease Society of the Obstetrics group. There's, it's a small group that usually meets in August. And, um, but they're all interested in infectious disease. And I think I have found at that meeting that there's at least 10 OBs interested in CMB. And that doesn't sound like much, but since we don't have any here, 10 is a good number, right? <laughs> so I don't know how we bridge that relationship. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, everybody's busy. It's expensive to travel. You know, but we've got to figure. We, we just aren't hitting it, Allison, as you know. i to figure it out. <laughs> I do think that one of the entrees, I know that in Europe, like you were saying, is because they've been far more advanced than we are as far as testing and treatment. Um, so I think that's how they've gotten them on board. However, I know in the States, in past years, um, MFMs have been, um, maternal fetal specialists have been far more, which are still OBs, um, to specialize in these. They've been very amenable. Uh, to working on CMB efforts and being on committees and work groups and things like that. And they're still, you know, members of ACOG many times. Um, so there's definitely some inroads there, and there are a few of them who are actually sometimes at the committee level um, with ACOG who show an interest in helping. But I think that's kind of a, a little side entree into getting ACOG. But we are the third rail, and I would never, ever, ever expect a whole lot of next year when we have any ACOG people coming. It's been a challenge. It's been a challenge because even when we had a meeting years ago, all the all the federal agencies came and, and different groups, FDA, it was you know NIH and all that. And the only group that was too busy and they just sent a letter was ACOG. You know, so it's been a hard road to get in, but I don't think we should give up and I don't think we should um 
we just keep pushing and we're going to hit that magic person. Just like we have Kim and Texas, he's reaching out. He's an ACOG member. He's reaching out to ACOG. So there are OBs. That's what I'm saying. When I've met the ones that are infectious diseases, they're interested. We just got to keep meeting them and kind of getting them interested and push. Okay. Do we have time? Let me take a question from um, that was online. So how does CMV affect weight gain or lack thereof? A tough question for clinical. Somebody. <laughs> I think it's really interesting that, and I don't think we, it hasn't been well described. Mm -hmm. I've had a few babies with congenital CMV whose weight gain has been poor, and this was like at the time. What the first one that I encountered was during the time that I wasn't sure whether to treat or not. It was like right around the, the treatment time. And with treatment, that baby did have improved weight gain. Yeah, it was symptomatic. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was, yeah, it was symptomatic and otherwise um, just had poor feet and was failing to thrive. And I've had, and there's no question that some of them are small and stay small. And I've had, and you know, that's a reassure because developmentally they're, they're fine. And, um, and some of them I've treated previously for six months, and yet they're on the lower curve. But they're not failing to thrive, but they're just small, like third percentile or even less. I And I've had some, baby, some babies who um, I do think that without treatment, um, I've been trying to see if I can get viral loads on some of these. So I, I think that some of these babies, it may be real, um, mm -hmm. and I think that treatment um, may be better. We know that treatment... At least in the six weeks of cancer, we're improved that group. Kiva, we had those 26 kids that we followed up, and 52% of them had problems gaining weight. It was during the preschool period, most of them were better. And then I asked the parents what was the problem, and for most of them, they weren't interested in eating. They just didn't want to eat, so you had to put food in front of them. And it, 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 it got better except for a smaller subgroup. And one of them even needed a pink, you say pink, you know, where you feed that directly into the stomach. So uh, some really have problems um, even to older age. And I think some of it, and not all of them, have also had some sensory type issues where they don't like the, the quality of the food. And so, um, and I think that's something that has come up. Um, you know, you get them pretty short to try to make up for some of it, but it's, a lot of them are not even, it's not that they're hungry. They just, they just don't want it. Um, and it's not aversion either, but it's, it just, um, and it's, it's not such follow this coordination, but they, I think some of them may be a sensory type of condition. We try to do the testing also of the antisetinators to see the two. The biggest one? No, the two to um, taste. I mean, the taste. Not, not the breeding, but the taste. We try to do the taste test. Well, no, 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 the texture. No, 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 no
and they couldn't say by asking parents or asking the older kids. But then, after some years, uh, dad came back and said, you talked about this uh, problems, can, is there a way to test it? Because she has a lot of problems, you know, she was 15. So I think the all sense organs are, might be damaged by the scenery. So on, um, you said that on the encyclopedia, and then you found that the head sides were improved. Was that you thought it was just in general, or was there structural improvements? Um, this was in the original trial of encyclopedia um, done in the 1990s, six weeks versus no therapy, and it's and looking at hearing outcomes. But the babies who received ganseclovir had improved head growth over the first six weeks. They did not do any neuroimaging to know whether like their MRI was any better or anything like that. It was just the head growth. Okay. The back. Yes. I just wanted to add a point. Um, in France, in uh, Robert de Grey Hospital, there is a, um, um, a doctor which is uh, starting a PhD on olfactive um, Impairment in uh, CMD. So you were talking about um, every sensor, sensory impairment, and uh, they have uh, discovered that olfactive system is impaired. So it could um, uh, injure. It could. Uh, it could um, um, uh, lead to um, taste injury. That's, uh, that's um, um, this work is uh, currently uh, going on the way on. So, we're, it's about time to end. So, is there anyone who has a burning question that we need to answer? We do have one. We're going to take it. And then we'll go have our posters and a drink and just chill. Okay. Do you know if there is any studies going on for um, the cause of um, later hearing loss? If there's like a study going on, if there's reactivation of the CD, or if it's just an anticipated thing? Um, and if that study is being done, if there's any, like, anybody looking into retreating with Southlight or Kansas um, will to prevent further hearing loss at that point? There's actually a, um, Rich Whitley and David Kimberlin in the collaborative antiviral study group here in Alabama and Birmingham are doing a toddler Balcan study. So if they're identifying with hearing loss and congenital CMV, there is a six weeks of Balcan secondary versus placebo. Um, if they're from one month to, to four years of, to 48 months, four years of age. Um, so that study is ongoing. Um, in multiple sites around the country, and then, um, and then, no, it's a treatment, right? You're talking about treatment, yeah, treatment, or, or if they either have, if they have hearing loss from uh, from congenital CMD and identified after a month of age, and then Dr. Park is doing a study after a month of age also, and those are babies, um, children with um, asymptomatic CMD infection. And hearing loss, and then treating them. Um, it's also a randomized trial. Okay, great. Thank you guys so much for being here and all the good questions. 
Thank you again for tuning in. Visit www.nationalcmb.org for additional topics and podcast episodes. Links for today's conversation can be found in the show notes. And don't forget, National CMB Foundation is a nonprofit organization, and we rely on donor support to bring you programming like the show you just heard. Please go to nationalcmb.org backslash donate to give online or text stop CMB to 41411 to give by phone. I'm Kristen Spitek. Thanks for listening.